This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome to Teacher Talk Radio. You're back with your hosts, Kripa and Nazia, for your late show. Tonight we will be talking about quality pastoral care and its profound impact. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening, listeners. It's so wonderful to be back again. Um, You'll notice that we're now no longer on the Sunday uh, afternoon slot. We are uh, on a Friday night um, and once a month. Um, We wanted to start off with thanking um, Teacher Talk Radio and the team, but also those that have supported our our show so far. We've had a wealth of wonderful networks, amazing, amazing um, thought processes and discussions outside of this and actually stem from our show so far. So a huge hearty thank you. Keep listening to to all the contributors here at uh, Teacher Talk Radio um, and do connect. It's always good to hear your thoughts um, post post our shows. Um, so, Lazia, how are you? I'm good. How's everyone? I hope you're all doing well. Um, yeah, it's good to be back, I think. It is. It's been quite a while since we've been away. Yeah, there's been a lot happening. Krupa, how have you been? Uh, well, so um, the, the reason... I guess we had to, to pause on things. So I had to take a pause was um, uh, due to a, a loss. My, my father passed away. And so having that um, that break was really necessary, um, but also um, grounding. And I think through that now, I've, I found a, a new sense of confidence. So, so back and raring to go and um, <clears throat> with lots of um, purpose again. So that's good stuff. Yeah, it's always, it's really important to take pause at those moments, isn't, isn't isn't it? Because what happens a lot of the time is that you were going 100 miles an hour, spinning 50 plates, especially when your leaders within education were, you know, regardless of what, what kind of setting you work in. And um, there's always so much work to be, work to do. And it's really important to take that pause. Um, so I'm glad that you got your pause and yeah, thank you're you. back. Thank you, that means a lot. But I also think it's, um, it makes you realize that it's not just us so that all practitioners out there you know while it's they're, they're giving the 100 percent at work they also are carers parents children brothers sisters and you have multiple roles in life and i think actually it's quite nice to start our session off with with karen um talk about the past element because just much like our children us adults also need to look after ourselves and make sure we have that that rest and respite but time for reflection too yeah, that's very true. Um, so, I mean, there's been a lot happening for all of us. Um, <coughs> I've recently, uh, well, my school has recently uh, won an award, so I'm really pleased about that. Amazing award-winning school, Nazia yeah. Ghanib. Look at you. <laughs> um, very fancy. Yeah, Congratulations. So thank you for that. So 
uh, yeah, and again, a lot of plate spinning. Uh, yes. In order to achieve that as well, so I'm really grateful for my team. Um, but I'm so glad we're back, and we've got some really refreshing and wise guests coming on our shows um, moving forward. Uh, and like Krupa said, we're once a month, and today, in terms of wisdom, and in terms of interesting and um, reflective and passionate leader, this le this leader that we have. Uh, on our show today is uh, nothing short of that. It's She's she's wonderful. Uh, her name's Karen Foster. And uh, I think, should we get started? Let's, let's do this. Hello, hello, Karen. Welcome, how are you today? I'm good, Krupa, thank you. Yourself? Very, very well. Can I just say you're our first uh, guest this time and we've been really selective because we are now back once a month um, and only on a Friday night um, and you're our very first uh, so we're only hoping to this for the year to begin with and we'll see what that looks like but um, we, um, we've really enjoyed it but, but really really pleased to have you here as our first guest. Thank you for inviting me I'm very excited. Super so Karen um, it'll be so good to hear about who you are your journey as an educational practitioner and all those bits in between so so do enlighten us. No problem. So um, my name is Karen Foster and I have been in the education sector for over 20 years now. My route into education has been quite different in that I came via the arts. So my background is in the performing arts, primarily in dance, um, then went on to youth work, then went into education. But the theme throughout all of that has been young people. And I very much have loved working with and engaging with young people, whether it be teaching them some form of creative arts, whether it be project managing things that they're doing, whether it be working directly with them in the youth work setting and then in the education setting as a pastoral lead. So that was my route into education in through a youth work project that I was with and we were assigned to a local secondary school. And the aim of that project was to work with disaffected young people in key stage four who were at risk of permanent exclusion. And so the idea was just to keep them, get them through their core and then make sure they don't get um, excluded. And to be fair, I think in the seven years I did it, I didn't lose one young person. I got them all through school um, onto post-16 destinations, which was lovely. They were, they were tough. It was tough and school often sent the really difficult children they just did not want in lessons. So being able to build up those relationships with them outside of school. So they would come out of school to the youth club every week we'd cook i'd cook for them we'd eat together so there was social eating they would have to sometimes help cook as well wash up um so it was kind of like a very community family orientated feel behind it between me and my team and then we would do learning and teaching so i don't have qts but they i got them through english and math so there was somebody in all in the team who like had a like real either specialism in one of the core or was upskilled enough depending on the level of that young person to be able to support them with the work and um, we all found it that we were learning too so you know having to remember how to do pythagoras theorem after maybe 10 years of not being at school was was interesting but we learned together and i think it was good for the kids that they understood that not every adult knew everything and we weren't frightened to say to them i have no idea what this is let's just work backwards and see um because i've got quite a solution focused brain so it's let's just we'll always get to a solution and a resolution 
Um, so I did that for about seven years, that project, and then the actual school itself asked me if I'd come and run at the time, which was quite innovative, their own little kind of like alternative provision or school within a school provision. And it was based, I remember I had a hut out on the field, so I was as far away from the school as possible. Um, and it was almost at the time I thought, isn't this lovely? Like we've got all the grass and we'd see the ducks and we'd see that, no, the theory was keep them as far away from the main body of the school. Um, and so no one can hear you scream. So that was, I had quite a few young people there and they were really tough. They were the kids that were fighting every day, um, were swearing every day, um, were physically assaulting each other, physically assaulting staff. And so learning to build those relationships and actually using my arts background to find another way in. So it wasn't necessarily through, we're going to sit here and read of Mice and Men, we're going to sit here and do Macbeth or Romeo and Juliet. It's like, let's find creative ways okay let's let's poetry doesn't have to be the way you think let's think about it as rap you know let's think about okay you're finding maths really difficult let's think about it in choreography and steps and movements and repetition and all of those kinds of things that you just need to remember and recall and all of those things so my arts background really did lend well to that kind of environment i do things like have music on in the background before it was seen as a thing to do it was you know let's just find ways to keep them focused, keep them distracted. So I was in my little hut for maybe three years and then a role became available, a pastoral role, a head of house role became available in the main school and I went for it and I got it. And again, it was quite an interesting concept. It was the first time I'd been in a ed formal education kind of thing. You know, I'd either always done like outreach youth work and so now I've got like proper structure and it's like oh I've got to be here at certain times and it made me really understand why some of the kids struggled with that whole dictatorial way of working and learning so I had to adapt and flex my style but I still tried as much as possible to keep bits of me so that the kids could relate so my school was in a part of London which has a really high um, population of African Caribbean students so for a lot of the students, for the first time, they're now seeing someone that looked like them in a position that's, you know, making decisions. And because I was the only, there were four of us who were heads of house and I was the only one of colour. Now, as time went on in that school, it was nice to see that more um, people of colour were getting into middle leader and senior leadership roles, but it took a while. It meant I could relate so much better with parents because they sat there a bit confused at times, be like, oh, this lady's talking to me. She's actually quite articulate, but she gets what I'm trying to say. You know, those little nuances that if you're from a certain community, you understand what those oh, looks mean, you know, <laughs> those kinds of things. You are making my heart sing, honestly. And I think that bit there about it being relatable is a, like a real theme that you've, you've shared, but you share that through each of your posts is that in different ways you've grown that that element of of strengthening relate relatability both with young people the community with families and i think that's such a such a beautiful sort of quality that you've shared straight away and actually that might be the bit that, that unhooks and i do believe really unhooks um those those children or young people that that have other things going on trauma or you know it could be um undiagnosed send needs or semh and all those sort of things that may be leading to some sort of behaviors that are not desired but actually it's it's how you are going to not label them but actually relate and try and bring them back in I think that is just it's music to my ears it's just beautiful it really is and you've articulated that so wonderfully thank you so very much no problem <laughs> you worked with disadvantaged and were they mainly from the 
um, Afro-Caribbean background or were, were ranging uh, ethnicities? So it was actually quite wide ranging, to be fair. Um, at the school that I was at, though there was a large community, African-Caribbean community in the borough that the school was sat, set in, the school was actually in a part of the borough that has a much larger and wider population of um, different ethnicities. So our school was really diverse. And I look back now and I really think that we did a pretty good job in the pastoral team for our learners to just be so accepting like they had their issues and don't get me wrong the, some of the behaviors and the responses were not the greatest but they were really accepting of anyone that was different anyone that was new we had quite a transient school community so a lot of asylum seeking in, um, children that would come in and families that would come in and in-year admissions we had a lot of in-year admissions and our kids would just it would just be like i'm gonna buddy you up with so and so yeah that's cool miss no problem it was that there was none of this no i don't want to because my clique is my clique or or any of that. And I think it's because as a pastoral team, we worked so hard because they saw us working together collectively and understanding that in order for the best things to happen, you have to be a team. But I do think it was important for our families and our parents and our carers to see somebody mm. else that was it looked like them or looked like the majority of the community for which they came from. Um, and for the kids to understand my journey and background, so I was never frightened to tell them what my background was like. And they were really surprised that I'm like, I can relate. I lived on a council estate, I get all of those things. Um, I understand that. And they found it really hard to make that correlation, but it also made me feel, you know what, they're understanding there's the choices, there's options. You can move out of where you're at. You can, you know, go to uni if you want to. You can still be you and still appreciate all of those things that are you and still have aspirations it's like it, it's it's not one thing or mm. another like they don't have to make a choice so yeah. yeah that was really important I mean the thing is that uh, you know that old adage that that talks about if you don't see it you won't you won't know that it exists and I think probably a lot of people have an issue with how much it is used um it actually rings true it is true 100 percent, 100 and I think the for people that are uncomfortable with it, it will tend to be because you're, you are pushing a button that's now making them really think about their own internal biases. Because, and also what they've been exposed to has been their norm. So if you turn on the television and all you ever see is someone that looks like you, if you only hear a language that is your main language that you've only ever heard, you go to other parts of the world and they're speaking your language. So you, you've got no understanding of why it's so important that representation matters because you've always had that and those tend to be the issues i think and why people get uncomfortable with the narrative of it's so important representation is so important and not just with race with gender with we you know with sexuality with with everything representation is so important and to be truly inclusive and to really be non-discriminatory you've got to get that because if you don't get that for a majority of people, they have never been the priority. They've never had an opportunity where in every walk of life they are represented to simple things. Like I think it was maybe three or four years ago when Boots brought out skin coloured, black skin coloured plasters. And I remember I was really excited about it at the time. And then I had to check myself and be like, wow, I shouldn't even need to be excited about this. Like, why is this even a thing? And it's those little small things where it's like people take for granted skin colour types. Whose skin? 
you know those things where it's now someone else had to go out and create it that's why it's now oh you know but now you're prioritizing x y and z over such and such yes because for so many years those underrepresented groups have not been so i'm a fierce champion of always advocating for anybody that's in the minority doesn't matter what the minority is mm. i'm a strong advocate of that and i used to say and i do i say it still to the kids that i work with and have contact with now and my own children it's really important when you have a platform to use your voice to either support those that don't have that voice but also to to, to sing as loud as you can for those coming underneath you who are like yeah if Karen can do it and if Karen's not frightened to challenge it and Karen's not frightened to ask the question and she's still standing and she's still going with it, then I can be brave and do it too. And that can only be if we all are strong enough to be like, okay, you're not, you're uncomfortable with me pushing on your privilege, whatever your privilege might be, you're, you're uncomfortable, but that's your issue. That's not mine. Mm. So I'm not going to be dulled down because it makes you uncomfortable because otherwise we're back to stage one, aren't we, with mm, the majority yeah. always getting and, everything. And the thing is that that is a factor in why young people are disaffected. That is a factor. Mm. And so the socioeconomic reasons, um, you know, representation of seeing yourself in certain positions and, and the relatability element and the connection with others is so important mm -hmm. in order to uh, reel in these uh, these youths which are disaffected. So, um, what are your thoughts around um, the young people that you've worked with? How what have you enjoyed working uh, on with them, and what has been the best thing? I think the best thing, and it still gets me now, is if I'm in the area maybe where I used to work, and someone will holler my name, and I'll just turn around and there's this big grown adult with three children. And I'm like, I don't know who you are. And they'll say, Miss Foster, how are you? They'll give you this massive hug and you're still trying to work out in your head, who is this, who is this human? And they'll say, I'm so-and-so from so-and-so. And you're like, I remember you at 12 or 15. And they're like, no, I'm 27 or I'm 30. I mean, that's the one that scares me most. Um, and these are my kids and I'm doing really well. And I remember when you said such and such to me. Now that always gets me. It gets me every time when they can remember something I said to them that at the time they couldn't relate, but then as grown up adult now they can. Um, so that's always a beautiful moment for me. Um, lovely moments also is when I've got, I can see some of my older students where like they're proper adults now. And I've got a couple of them who follow me on LinkedIn and just seeing how well they're doing. Like kids who were told you're not gonna amount to anything, like you won't get through year 11 and you're gonna fail. And now you see them doing so well and so grounded and so happy and you just think I'm so blessed to have been part of your journey so um that's something I found really really nice as well to have those opportunities and also just gives you hope in remembering that they're so young and they're so you know that rational thought and that prefrontal cortex of their brain has not developed absolutely but yet so much judgment is decided isn't it on a 14 year old who's still so developing labeling, but there's also so much labeling and i think that's that's mm. i find that quite tricky and i think that will lead us on to our next question quite nicely is is when we are thinking about these young people that are disaffected or, or had sort of different journeys that could be because of their identity or the 
the differences in that or not having, you know, relatable role models like yourself. Um, the world can be a very strange place to navigate because you're not sure where you sit. You're not sure who you should be. You're living in two communities. You go home and you live in X culture and you come into school and you're, and you're like, I don't get it. And actually then sometimes what they try to do is potentially try and bring the best of both into the into it but it's not always it's not always the best it's just bringing some parts of both because they're trying to hold on to to working out who they are and how to make that happen and that I think that's always a valid reason always sort of allows me to be compassionate and mm. to see them compassionately because I think I was you I tried but I couldn't do it I couldn't so what I did is I came to school and school became my playground because that was part of my personality so I think it's really interesting that whole journey but thinking about the difficulties or the challenges what do you think your team or, or yourself you know have come across um around these learners who who may not be attending or if their behaviors are escalating in a direction that's not very helpful talk us through some of that so for me i you know i always say my mantra is all behavior is a form of communication yep so if it's behavior that is not deemed to be in the acceptable realm for me that's an unmet need mm. now i know it's really easy for me i always say i think sometimes that those who go into the pastoral world it's a vocation you've, you've you've got to see it as a vocation almost like nursing you can't see it as maybe someone who's teaching and learning who for a teacher they just want to go and teach their subject like that's what they trained to do they didn't really want to deal with and still don't a lot of stuff want to deal with the other bit they just want kids to sit there learn retain recall we move on someone else can deal with the nurturing and the developing of them um but it can be really hard and i think getting the buy-in from staff for them to understand the role and the really important role that any and everybody in a school i don't care whether you're the receptionist midday supervisor caretaker you have a role and a responsibility to make sure that you are part of shaping and helping that young person shape who they are and feeling that sense of belonging and that sense of belonging like you were kind of um, saying Cooper, it's like belonging but not to the point where you feel you've got to sanitize maybe your lived experience up to the point when you started school so then you can't feel you could be you and bring those experiences and that culture and and all of those that rich tapestry that's you mm. into school um but recognising we're nurturing it, but not on that tokenistic, we do Black History Month once a year and we do LGBTQ and Pride once a year and we, you know, we have Disability Awareness Week once a year and it's great and we just, then we forget about it. Like if you do it well, it should be a golden thread for me that weaves all the way what through. I think what that's the challenge. What happens in the other parts of the years? Where does everyone go after that, after that week or that month? But I'm really glad yeah. you break that. Yeah, it's, it's hard though, isn't it? Because I think if you think about who is in charge in a lot of our schools and what the, you know, what the breakdown is of gender and ethnicity, it tends to be people whose privileges just mean like they've got good intentions, good intentions, but it's not their experience. So mm -hmm. for them, they don't see how important it is to make sure that inclusivity runs all the way through from what food you serve in the canteen to what's on your PE curriculum sports wise to who you're getting in to come in and be a reader for your kids or 
who you're getting coming into the community to be part of a drop down day for PSHE and looking at other careers that aren't just the formal ones where everyone goes to law school or goes to read medicine and has to go to Oxbridge. And, you know, looking at that as being the only way to allow children and families with barriers to succeed. And again, it's that privilege that comes with believing that's the only way in which certain communities can. Um, and don't get me wrong, it's not that so if we know with certain communities communities have a real strong sense of education and the importance of education because it's about choices. But for me, I think sometimes the choices bit gets missed and good intentions can end up almost meaning you're trying to vicariously live yourself, live for your life and undo your the wrongs of your ancestors through a generation of children because you're feeling it's the best for them, it's the best for them that I make them sit ten GCSEs. Best for who? Like yeah. How is that the best? And, and why are we doing that? But that's where that holistic idea of, of growth and that young person comes through and actually really thinking about the true embodiment of, of that development, you know, the mm. mind, body, soul, and thinking about how rich, like you do talk about that tapestry, how rich that learning is and where they're going to go with that. And actually, I think when we always think about this end goal of getting all the GCSEs, but actually you've got a young person that's really struggling with their identity, or you have... Uh, the same young person that is so burnt out that they're not even at their best what's the value of those things so actually it's about when it comes to thinking about being you know pastorally aware and thinking about that young person yes the academics are are important and yes we can work towards that but actually we've got to always remember there's a whole child within that that also needs to develop and their brains and their bodies aren't quite there until they are in their mid-20s and so sometimes you've got this sort of you know this there's two layers of journeys happening at the same time and they're not always aligned and we forget that we, as practitioners as past you know as practitioners that are trying to get through curriculum trying to get through duty trying to get through not having to put another pex through because you don't want to send that to the local authority you know yeah. it's such a hard place to be and i think sometimes it's just taking stock of that and thinking let's be really realistic about our expectations here and let's be really realistic about how we relay that and actually, what is it that we want as young people leaving our school? Do we want them leaving with all of the qualifications, but being actually quite unwell emotionally? Mm. Or do we want them to have a journey, a positive journey, but also being able to be resilient enough, be able to, to put their hand up and to question, to be able to make those differences? And I think we've got to have a real look at that in terms of education as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's about this idea of balance. Balance doesn't necessarily mean that you have to sacrifice an element in order to uh, succeed academically you don't need to sacrifice pastoral and vice versa you know you can find that balance when you think about the young people that are coming into into your setting they bring you you want them to bring their whole self you want them yeah. to nurture the, their best self mm. how do you nurture the best self to make sure that they feel feel uh, happy about their identity and not make them feel alienated about that as, as alongside that what we do is we provide them with a range of opportunities and a range of ways to explore themselves and their place in the world mm. and that starts with them finding their place in their setting and if they find their place in their setting then that can then those skills that they learn their resilience perseverance all of those skills that they learn um that'll carry them through outside of school yeah but you know what's so hard though and you know and this trying not to be political but i think the curriculum particularly with evac shoehorning 
so many learners into a certain pathway and then schools feeling so much pressure that if progress eight isn't this and if attainment scores are not that that everything is going to fall apart means you have got learners who are not able to really take subjects that they're really interested in you know those creative subjects those subjects that allow them to move around more and they're not sat at a desk those subjects that allow work experience to happen in venues and organizations that are not as sterile you know i i do feel so i do feel sympathy you know being on the other side of education mm -hmm. now where i am sitting in a senior leadership role within a trust and essential function that those battles that i can see principals dealing with and then you've got me turning around and saying so let's just have each child have their own creative timetable and they look at me like karen this is just not going to work like you're almost they think i'm too far removed when what i'm trying to do is like think 10 years ahead because that is where it's going to have to go we'll go back to vocational qualifications and that kind of thing this is so exciting and actually this brings us nicely onto our break and we're going to talk about something that's going to lead straight through with this conversation. So hold fire everyone, we'll be right back after the break. This show is brought to you in partnership with John, with John County Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our Study Skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving and many more. Offer the Eaton X curriculum in your school for free. Visit EatonX.com to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The mother of murdered schoolgirl Brianna Jai has spoken about the need for positive change and a lasting legacy for her daughter. Mrs Jai visited Westminster as part of her campaign for mindfulness to be taught in all schools in England. She commented on her Peace and Mind UK Facebook page that her focus would be to improve lives by empowering people, giving them the tools to build mental resilience, empathy and self-compassion through mindfulness. She went on to say that she hoped to create more understanding for everyone. Mrs Jai has already raised thousands of pounds to deliver mindfulness training in schools in her local area. The Department for Education has said there were no plans to introduce mindfulness, but the RSHE curriculum included a strong focus on mental health and that all schools had been offered grants to train a senior mental health lead by 2025. Mrs Jai has also spoken about the idea for a phone for under 16s to limit access to social media apps. 
The Children's Commissioner, Dame Rachel D'Souza, told the BBC that she supported the ideas and said more could be done to promote phones that are safe by design. She described Mrs Jai's vision as really smart, but questioned whether the likes of Google and Apple would create phones with access that is safe by design. PM Rishi Sunak has stated that the new Online Safety Act is robust, but parents told the BBC how difficult it is to take away a smartphone from a child who already has one, whilst others described the pressure from social media as relentless. In Wales, the cap on university tuition fees is rising from £9,000 to £9,250 a year from September. Education Minister Jeremy Miles says he recognises students will be disappointed. A report on the BBC News website says loans will also go up to cover the 2.8% increase, which will affect undergraduate students studying in Wales whose home address is in Wales. Those with a home address in Wales but who study in other parts of the UK are unaffected because they already pay the £9,250 for their studies. Mr Miles blamed sustained inflationary pressure on high education providers in Wales and that the increase was unavoidable but would help to safeguard provision and investment. The Guardian reported on school finances with an article on findings that almost half of multi-academy trusts in England were in deficit last year. The report by the accountancy network Creston UK was based on studying the accounts of 279 trusts representing over 2,300 schools. It found 47% were running in-year deficits. Rising energy bills and staffing costs were blamed by many and made worse by uncertainty around income streams. School leaders say that schools are constantly asked to do more with less. Last October, the Department for Education in England admitted to making a £370 million error, meaning mainstream primary and secondary schools will be given at least £50 less for each pupil than original forecasting predicted. This forced school leaders to redraw their budgets for 2024 to 25. With energy costs still high and a recruitment and retention crisis leading to an increased use of agency staff, mean that many school leaders are facing further pressure on budgets and many expect a deficit trend to continue. More than 100 school buildings containing dangerous concrete will be rebuilt or refurbished, according to a report on the BBC. The government says all affected schools will receive funding to permanently remove the dangerous concrete known as RAC. Unions say the announcement includes no new money. The 234 schools affected in England have reportedly returned to face-to-face -face learning, but many children are still being taught in marquees, portable classrooms or in other off-site locations. Some pupils have not been able to access specialist classrooms for design and technology, as well as science labs and other specialist spaces. The government has been criticised for not making changes to exams for those affected. Finally, a jury in the United States of America has held the mother of a 15-year-old mass shooter criminally responsible for the death of four high school students in 2021. The 15-year-old himself was sentenced to life without parole in December. But at the start of February, the male's mother was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. The first time a parent has been convicted of such charges 
due to their child's role in a mass shooting. The case has raised questions about the accountability of parents. Although the youth's parents had gifted him the weapon days before the attack. Prosecutors also argued that parents had not paid enough attention to their son's declining mental health. US law generally only holds individuals responsible for their own actions, but this case appears to present some change. The schools where the shooting took place has also faced criticism for not acting swiftly when drawings of guns were found on the mail earlier in the day of the shooting. Whatever the outcome of the sentencing, the case appears to be reinvigorating debate around the issue of parental responsibility, alongside individual culpability. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Welcome back. Um, we are having an enthralling conversation with Karen. Um, and we have got so many more questions and so much more conversation to get through. Um, so I'll just get going. So you're a head of inclusion within the trust that you're working yeah. in. Um, and you have responsibility for safeguarding. So from your experience, what do you think the future looks like for vulnerable young people? So I think for me, we've got to have a much more different approach to what supports looks like for them so that they are actually able to access their learning in a way that meets their need. Um, for me, I'm very much interested in the whole online school platforms that are popping up um, and organisations who are doing much more kind of trauma informed um, approaches to how they engage with learners. I think we need to be, you know, we, we can't shy away from the fact that we've got a generation of children that have been born in the 21st century where for them, the online world is normal. They, there's a seamless connection between in real life and online. Um, and from an education point of view, I do think that we need to recognise that so that we're better. We learn, we should learn more from the children, if that makes sense, about the online risks rather than telling them because they actually know a lot more than we do. Um, AI for me is a big thing, like we've got to get on top of that and get our kids at a point where they understand A, the benefits and the risks, but we as adults understand the, the risks that come with AI. Um, but yeah, I see a future, I'd love a future where any learner, wherever they are, is able to access their curriculum in a way that meets their need, particularly SEMH students for whom anxiety is a really big thing trying to shoehorn them to coming into a building that they just can't cope with because they can't even leave their house we've got to be better um, and we've got to try and get schools as institutions to a place where they get comfortable with online learning and not seeing it as a get out clause in a, in a way like why do we have to be in a building why do the children have to be in a building when we've shown covid has shown us that we have been able to adapt had to adapt really quickly to teaching them online we've got experience and time on our side so we can do that safely make sure the right safeguarding and welfare checks are done you know home visits still take place facetime calls still happen all of those opportunities for kids to, to highlight or raise a concern with staff and still build those relationships up with them in different ways different settings you know sessions happening in youth centers in libraries in all different kinds of places that's the kind of future I see for really meeting the need of our most vulnerable learners. 
And do you think that having that sort of blend that you've just suggested there, that would actually help us understand how to be better with safeguarding? Because we're in and out of their homes and we're in different locations and we're sort of working out ways to be bespoke in terms, so you can have an education, but you can bespoke that with and without that technology, um, seeing how they use that. What's your thoughts around, around that? I mean, for me, nothing ever gets away from the, no, you know, I'm not sitting here saying there should be no face to face interaction, not at all. There should, where you can always make sure that that is happening because you learn so much from being in that environment, particularly if you're doing a home visit, like you can see without saying a word, what's yep. happening in that household. Is it clean? Is it tidy? Is there smells that there shouldn't be? Is there stuff around that there shouldn't be? So you know I still would expect that to happen and that's where you can really have that spread of people understanding that safeguarding is everyone's responsibility because from my perspective as long as people are upskilled anyone can go and do a home visit and from a pastoral point of view it should just be something everybody does whether you're a form tutor to whether you're ahead of year to whether you're the principal or the attendance officer it shouldn't actually matter schools need to be better at actually not deciding there's only a core group of people that can do those things and it will help learners as well see a different range of people that's not the same face it will help parents see that and do that more and get that oh yeah the principal's going to come today or it could be the receptionist or it could be the head of year it could be it doesn't matter it's somebody at school who is interested in my child and is interested in how they're doing and is interested in how I'm doing and wants to make sure they're learning and give them the best opportunity that allows them to do that. Um, I know people say, yes, but what about the social aspect? But most of our children communicate online. And the interesting thing is you get them in a scenario where you do things like, like you prepare them for interview and they're like, absolutely like, they, they don't know how to do it. And that's half the problem, isn't it? Because technology's mm. kind of taken over. Um, but some just feel more comfortable. Children with real social anxiety feel more comfortable communicating in chat online on Teams or Google Classroom. We need to embrace that and allow opportunities for that to happen in a safe and secure way so that they still will tell us what's going on for them. Um, and But we can still communicate with them in a way that makes them feel comfortable. Absolutely. And I think there's, I think there's the flip side of that as well, where sometimes it's, it's allowed without boundaries and then it compounds a, a, a behaviour that doesn't have the space to sort of exercise those skills. So I think that that idea of it being blended, you know, making sure that there's meaningful connections that are there. We are designed to to connect. We're happiest when we're connecting. Um, so finding ways to do that, um, but also being able to be modern and be contemporary and be able to do something that could be really adventurous and creative with it. So it's that, that blend, but also that balance that comes with that, which is really, really interesting. I think the point around, um, you know, doing the home visits, what you learn about the family um, I often found when I was um, within education and, and still now that the noisiest pet parents are actually those that, when I say noisy, are actually they're asking for help themselves sometimes because yeah. they're saying, I'm worried. I don't actually know what my next step should be. Am I being a good parent? Just mm -hmm. give me, just let me know that I'm making the right noises. I'm going to protect my child, but I need you to, to know that I'm going to do that. So I think sometimes it's, it's also understanding where the adults are in that young person's world and actually how much of that is being projected to the child and through the, through the child as well. So being part of that dynamic, listening to it, seeing it and seeing it happen in front of you is actually really, really powerful because then you can navigate better and keep that child safe, but also keep that child learning. 
and and I think that sometimes we miss that bit when we hit we're on the phone and you've got that parent that's just got so much on and they're just yelling because of something but actually it's because they've got all those other factors and we're placing judgment maybe incorrectly and what we need to be doing is saying hey are you okay um yeah that's fine 100 percent. and it goes back to my earlier, earlier point of all forms of behavior as a form of communication yeah. so we should never forget that you don't suddenly have all the answers when you become an adult and a lot of parents have their own adverse childhood experiences which mean they right. are struggling as an adult now with unresolved trauma from childhood um and being and having and that's why you know that big thing about having a much more trauma informed approach and understanding the impact of aces yes. helps you then be empathetic helps you then understand about being what inclusivity looks like what it means to different like it just helps you recognize that that parent is telling you something and if you just took the time to listen without saying a word just take the time to listen you learn so much more but also you're able to start building trust because now they can find an adult where maybe they didn't have one in childhood who is just listening who is not judging who's not asking for anything other than just tell me what's going on and ask me what I can do for you so we need to be better at that I think in as people as a whole I think not even just in education in social care um, in health, like we need to be better at recognising ACEs and the real mm. impact it has on the next generation. Mm. If we don't deal with it, with the adults who are now parents, it's yeah. just going to keep repeating itself. I, I honestly find like, you know, sometimes we avoid these conversations with parents, but actually we should be having them. And it, this should mm. be on parcel of those general conversations we had, have with one another, the same way that mental health has now become normalised and it should have been for a very long time. But it is now because people are openly talking about it. People are advocating, uh, openly advocating for it. But actually, that's, that's the same with the trauma-informed practices, the understanding of toxic stress, understanding of how we engage the prefrontal cortex, how the amygdala uh, brings about those um, responses, the flight, fight, freeze, fawn responses, how the nervous system is connected to that. And even generational trauma, yeah. All of these things are... Um, are important to talk about. They're in, important conversation points to build self-awareness. Mm. And that's how we move forward as a society. Yeah. And I like that thought about generational trauma, because again, this is where it's those uncomfortable conversations that yeah. sometimes have to be had around, you know, choices that none of us made, um, but still impact certain parts of our community today, still impact certain behaviors that happen within communities around families and family structures and all of those things that kind of you have to track it back to 200 years ago 300 years ago 50 years ago sometimes to understand the why and not just think yeah but that was 50 years ago you know yeah. that was 50 years ago that why are you still talking about that like you weren't even born or your parents were still quite young and not understanding that it, it just it's inherent it's almost like in the dna isn't it it's just like through osmosis it just happens and you don't know why and if you're not ready to kind of look at it and be like why is it certain communities these behaviors keep happening yeah. aggression or drugs or whatever why is it that in communities some communities the family is so fractured because the dynamic has shifted like asking the why um because if we don't we're just going to keep repeating and certain groups of young people are just going to be stereotyped and pigeonholed and then the self-fulfilling prophecy happens doesn't it 
And I think once with asking that why, there because of time and resources and, and thought processes and, and experience they're going through it, the how changes and the how evolves. So we're mm. at the looking at evolving the how better. So we're having conversations with young people about how many seconds it takes from them to 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 feel something and then to to make that that decision whether it's going to be fight or flight or what you know or or pause or what they're going to do. So I think it's those those really careful conversations that need to be had but also like you said however uncomfortable it is not to use it as a shield or or something to be to feel negative about um but to understand actually that it happened and mm. where are you at with that and how are you taking that forward and actually what we'll then hopefully see is that the window of tolerance becomes larger because there's some points with certain aspects where it becomes really small and then really big and actually how do we balance that out a little bit more as humans um based on experiences now and previously so wow that's really got my brain ticking thanks guys that really <laughs> has got my brain ticking i like that so let's think about um can you share the biggest concerns or you know areas where things aren't going so great that could impact young people and and, and its relation to the educational system um i think one of the big things as we all know is non-attendance it's huge we've got children losing hours and hours and weeks and weeks of learning that they'll never get back and it worries me that what's going to happen five years from now where are those children going to be when they're adults how are they going to be able to function within the society and the community that they're in because many will leave with very few qualifications and if they do have them they'll be at the lower end of the grade so that really does worry me, which is why we've really got to think about alternative ways to try and engage kids back in learning and be able to give them real choices. Because for me, that's what it's about, it's giving them choices. So that that's something that does keep me up at night. Um, and those lost generation, like those children that are just missing, like we just don't know where they are and services can't find them. Like how are services not able to find them? I don't understand. Like you can't walk a hundred meters sometimes they say, don't, don't they, without being picked up on CCTV yet we've lost over 150,000 children or something since COVID where services don't know where they are. Um, that frightens me. It frightens me as to where they are, how are they, who's checking on their welfare and stuff. Um, and you probably heard about the really sad case yesterday of that little baby toddler who died um, because his dad had a heart attack. Now, when you track it back and you know, you'll look at the serious case review, you'll kind of think if that was a child that was of school age, you would hope school would also do those home visits, right? Because it looked like the social worker did everything that they needed to, but yet the police potentially may not have followed through as quickly. And those are always my fears where we talk about multi-agency working and we've just had the revisions to working together document around safeguarding, about sharing of information and you know things being done timely and robustly, but it's still humans. And forever time, there's always an, a human at the end of the chain open to interpretation and that's always my biggest thing like you can have every policy and process in the world if the human being at that moment either doesn't get it or doesn't think it's their responsibility our children our adults whoever are the people that get let down so that's the fear i fear for ects and new teachers coming into the profession and the burnout that comes and you know they're lasting three years aren't they sometimes and then they're done that makes me sad because 
at what point is it going to go boom and we haven't got anybody teaching our children what what then what's the plan for that and i don't think we're far off of that potentially happening because we can't retain teaching staff in the profession so what is it that needs to be done differently to kind of address those kinds of those kind of things um and the biggest one for me is the curriculum it's not meeting need just not meeting need and, and until we reform that yeah, that's it and that is where yeah. we're at honestly because i was thinking and waiting for this bit because when i still come back to the beginning of our conversation around you know attendance and and those like disaffected if school was engaging if they had choice if they had voice if they had space to not be judged but to develop would our outcomes be different hmm. but we're basing our outcomes on curriculum outcomes that is not meaningful to our young people not in the way it needs to be i think it's because I think they're just made to feel it's the only, it's Wait. the only thing. It's like, this is going to be the sum summary of 12 years mm. of your life in education. These seven or eight qualifications that that's it. That's a whole summary of your education. And that's the, that's the bit that's scary, isn't it? That we're making kids feel that if they're missing two or three days of school, the world's going to end. When what we need to do is reframe that and look at they go to get a fine you know there's just so yeah. many things that are just you think how what what's going on it just blows my mind every time Nancy, i'm going to bring you in now any thoughts from you so i work with a young people who have been out of education so um you know the trauma-informed practice and those young people who are at risk of me those are the young people that i deal with and everything that you're saying rings true um so the fact that there's um lost trust along the way and when you lose trust in education then where, where do you go with your young person with your child next if you lose trust in education education professionals and i think that that's uh, that's happening and has been happening purely by the fact that there are so many parents who are now homeschooling their kids as well so it's it's a real thing and we need to really address it uh, how do we build trust? You know, we always talk about, especially when it comes to leadership discussions, we talk about building a culture of trust in within the organisation. That extends beyond that organisation, that's that formal structure, that building. It should extend to the stakeholders. It should, it should extend to those students. It should extend to those parents. Um, next question, because we are almost coming to the end of our conversation, which is so sad. We always say this, don't we, Krishna? We we start a conversation, and we've got so much more to give, and so much more to say, and we want to, and we've got so much more to listen to and hear and digest. Do you have any any specific success stories during those periods? Because they they're good times, but they're also tough times as well, aren't they? Yeah. So um, I learned the other day that one of the schools that I worked at, there was a young person who um, was part of my kind of like alternative provision. Um, she really struggled regulating her emotions. She was really volatile. Um, you know, she was one of those that school had decided had kind of kind of ring fence and be like, yep, she's never gonna make it through, never gonna pass, but she was so bright, really bright girl. Um, and I always used to say to her teacher, she's bored. She's actually bored. Like, she's bored, like differentiate please, like find some extension work, like give her something else to do anyway. She, my, my One of my old colleagues contacted me a couple of weeks ago and they, they said to me, do you remember so-and-so? I'm like, I will never forget that name. Of course I do. They're like, 
you never believe it. She's now a CAMS worker and she's working with one of my colleagues' learners. And, you know, you sit back and you, you think then about who this child is and what she was like. And I, I just had a little cry because I'm like, oh, my goodness me, look at that. Look at that. And my friend was saying to me and she said when, because she remembered my friend from when she was there and she said, oh, do you still speak to Miss Foster? Yeah, speak to Miss Foster. Say hello. I said hello. Like this, this woman, so she's 27 now, and it's those moments where it's like everyone else had written her off. Me and my team were like, no, we'll work with that, we'll deal with that. It's unmet need, it's unmet. And she's gone on to be so, so successful and in an area of work that clearly she can resonate. She can, she can add so much value to those learners and experiences to those learners, the empathy. She can have all of those things. And it's, those are those beautiful moments where it gives me my why, because this role, you know, this sector is hard. And there are times when I question why, and then I hear those nuggets, or I'll see a child who hasn't been coming to school forever, and I get their school to adapt their curriculum, their timetable, and you know, phase return them in, or look at alternatives like work placements and college um, day releases, and all of that. And then you see the success. You see that child now, 93% attendance, like they were 24, and it's those little moments. And I know they're small. And I know you kind of think you can't scale that up in the way you want, but my God, that gives me my why. It makes me realise why I do what I do, why I've stayed in the sector for so long and why it's so important that I keep staying to just be able to be the one that bangs on the door and be like, got to do it differently. Got to do it differently. Like I've got to be the voice because at the moment I'm in a, I'm in a sector where everyone needs to be like a certain shape and put in a peg in a hole. And I've always been the unicorn. So I'm very much the, no, you don't have to do it like that. I don't want to do it like that. So yeah, those are a couple of my success stories that make me feel really happy that I've played a part in a young person's future success. And it's always come round full circle and now she's serving. Mm. And I mean, that part where she's not only grown, but she's she's serving. And we know there's, there is direct correlation around, you know, those that are excluded or hexed. And you know how many of those enter the justice system, and and actually she she didn't become a statistic. She's actually gone out to, to further reduce that. And I think when you sit with that, you sit with that humbly. You think, wow, like that's magic. So kudos to to you and your team, and to all those amazing practitioners out there that are are trying daily. I certainly am with with the you know the role that I have, and I think and you've got large students on large on large numbers of students that you can see them sort of slipping through and, and you've got a whole group of people that are trying, they are trying and they don't give up. Mm. Uh, and you leave at the end of the day with, with your hands in your head thinking, what, what more, what more, what more can we do? But no one says, let's stop. And I think when you have that, that's, that's just magic. Like I said, it's magic, it's hard work, but it's magic. And that's what gets you up every day because you know each young person needs that. Um, and yep. they need that and even if it's not direct family and all of that Alrighty, so tell us what's next for you and the work that you're doing wow so i'm always a blue sky thinker so i always think about if something was a limit no there was no kind of like money limits what would i want um and for me i kind of like i say i want a system where students can access their learning in any which way that works for them 
I want things in place for parents to support them because for some of our parents, they've got low levels of literacy and numeracy. And then you're asking them to support their child with their learning. Yeah, but if their own literacy and numeracy is poor, how are you going to expect them to do that? And so now you're making them relive tra childhood trauma um, of feeling useless and ineffective and all of those things. You're making them live it again now through their children. So we need to do more to upskill to so they can support. Um, we need to, for me, have opportunities for better infrastructures and support for people new into the sector. Um, we need to bang the drum harder to make sure that there's much better representation from whether it be the global majority or other marginalized groups so that our learners get a whole breadth of any everything. You know, we talk about the Equality Act, but how well do we really embed that in practice in what we do with recruitment, for example, or retention or reasonable adjustments or all of those things. Um, and I really want organisations to live their process, like live your whatever your your USP is or whatever you say your core values are or your norms, live them. And that means sometimes calling out your colleagues if they're not and not being frightened to and creating those safe spaces where you can be vulnerable, um, but it's safe, as opposed to you don't want to be vulnerable because you're worried about repercussions if you've got something wrong or made a mistake um, and allowing mistakes, because that's how we learn, right? It's how we grow. But I think as we become adults, we're made to feel we shouldn't. And I just want a world where we are allowed to do that safely. Um, and education is the way to do it so we can model to our learners. Okay, it's all right to get it wrong. It's fine. Let's learn from the mistake, though, so we don't do it again. That would be great. <laughs> you've got you've got a courageous journey ahead of you, and I'm sure that you will meet it head on. Um, if anyone can do it, a unicorn can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, finally, what top tips do you have that you could share with your pastoral hat on? I would say. Um, be the person remember to be the person that knows everything about the school don't feel that you only deal with behavior deal with attainment learn about attainment learn about data understand what progress eight means so that you don't feel that you're sat in a position where you can't contribute because if you are a good pastoral lead you are the heart of your school um, and you're the one that will know everything about your learners so that's the first thing keep your sense of humor be really important and don't feel I think as you progress through the ranks that you have to lose that sense of yourself if your personality is your personality um I enjoy being the personality that I am it's taken me a long time to be comfortable with that but it's who I am and I think sometimes when we move through senior leadership we feel that we've got to become less of ourselves and I think it's to an earlier point made by you Krupa that it's kind of how much of that almost masking has to happen in order for you to kind of fit like how things might be at home and how you are at home and how you mirror that to how you are at work. Sometimes they're juxtaposed, aren't they? And I'm very much trying to just merge as much as possible. Um, and if you don't know something, go and learn. Like, don't be frightened to say, I don't know, but then go away and find out because learning and growing is important and we should never stagnate. Um, and celebrate, like bring bring up the ones behind you, like be that role model, be that cheerleader, be that wing woman, like don't be frightened to be like, I'm happy to take a back seat for you to have the moment, like recognize when someone does something well, 
if you're an, if you're a manager or a leader like big up your team like don't always think it was me it was me it was me be a leader and not a manager i think is what i try and say because leaders grow their people and feel really good when their people move on because it means you've done your job right and leave the ego like Ego is just not needed in the role that we do in the profession that we have. And if we had less of that, maybe more things would get done um, and more people would feel valued in the role that they they kind of hold. Well, it's just incredible. And actually, if everyone could see my face right now, I'm beaming from ear to ear. You're, you're saying everything that I believe in, I think, and I think if we can live that and, and truly make those things happen, actually, wow, what a world we live in. What a Great. world we you know, and how we've reduced trauma, how we'll sort of eradicate imposter and all those horrible things that, that come in the way sometimes. And I think, you know, having that space to recognize that and to support one another. But I, I think taking the idea of championing one on, know that we both are championing for you and we're rooting for you to continue doing the great work that you're doing, Karen. And it's been an absolute pleasure and privilege for us to have you um, sat here talking to us today. And, and uh, we hope your voice is shared loud and far and wide and people reach out and, and they keep this conversation going because it takes a village. It really does. Um, so thank you ever so much, Karen, for being here today. And thank yeah, you thank for inviting me. Yeah, thank you so much, Karen. It's been a real pleasure and uh, it's been a really enlightening conversation, I would say, um, and lots of food for thought um, for anyone. Uh, we will come in here with different perspectives and those perspectives are based on our experiences. And it's really important that, you know, there's there's opportunities are there for us to share those perspectives because that's how we learn from one another. So thank you so much, Karen. Thank you. So that was quite an interesting conversation. I want more of it. <laughs> so good. Uh, Karen is a force, isn't she? She's just incredible. And it's so wonderful when we meet practitioners that are so aligned um, and it gives us hope doesn't it, that, that there is, you know, great, great people out there that are doing all the right things and, and thinking about, about things in, in different ways. Yeah. And I think what she was able to provide for us was a perspective uh, from the students, mm. uh, a perspective from uh, someone who's responsible for those students. Absolutely. Um, and trying to pull both of them together, because actually one of the key things about any pastoral role, and we've even had a contributor who's spoken about the the family support worker and how amazing they are. Um, one of the most important things about any kind of pastoral lead or pastoral worker is that they themselves have to be in a place whereby they're fully supported, mm. emotionally supported. Absolutely. Um, because the work that they do is uh, is immense and they can easily be, be overworked. And that's what one of our contributors has just said about how their family support worker is amazing but overworked. And actually the overwork element is the emotional turmoil and emotional um, kind of uh, stresses that can that you go through because you know sometimes you do come across very challenging situations home lives um so kudos to anyone who takes on these pastoral roles i'd say and to be honest it's there in in any organization you have the pastoral uh, care workers or leads and uh, support workers but actually every single member of staff should be taking a lead in that and i think that's where maybe the whole kind of um that support network and that support structure would really come into play is if the all the 
every single member of staff was on board and recognised themselves as key people in the lives of key pastoral care and support, provide key, uh, uh, key pastoral support for the young people that they work with. Um, and I think that that would make a big, big change as well. I agree. And I think the I think that does happen. It's just the proportion of teachers and young uh, young people, if you think about how large schools can be versus those that might be on, in pastoral teams, they generally have those a timetable or you might have one person that is not on a timetable, but overseeing all of the young people's pastoral. So, so the proportion of of, you know, adult to, to young people or, or you know, um, the needs that's required from them, that's where the the, the pull is and that also goes for us just think about therapies and you know other external um professionals that come through actually work within that it's there's a whole host of people that 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 multi-professional approach is, is incredibly um powerful in that um but one of the things that really got me going was thinking about this uh, this idea of attendance and actually it made me feel worried again and it made me feel worried because while we know attendance is a concern it's it's growing very very quickly and it's growing where to a point where i believe potentially there are no more spaces um schools that are specific in smh or those that have particular um direction in terms of supporting learners with particular needs or or those sort of um traumas or ebsa and all those interesting parts where do they go and, and, and how do we support them and i think those those are the students I worry about the most. Mm-hmm. You know, it's those that are, you know, have medical needs or have, um, like I said, EBSA and um, or electing to to be at home and learn. Those numbers are growing. So therefore, again, it's it's compounding that whole idea that education needs to change and needs to change very very quickly um, because it is impacting attendance. Yeah, and I I I, I totally agree with this idea of that. Um, that there needs to be a big kind of shift uh, in in the way we're viewing attendance now as well, mm. you know. And and um, I think that there was uh, one of the things that really kind of hits home to me is about the the from the trauma perspective the P, the PRR, mm. which is protect, relate, regulate, and reflect. And I think practices like that that are based in evidence and research, using those to support things like attendance and effective pastoral support for young people I think are really key for schools and I think that the schools need to really start thinking about strategic planning and aligning uh, which are the roadmap to um, making sure that they, they align the school priorities to the holistic development of the pupils that are in the school and I think that bringing those together would really work and like you said the time is now we have responsibility mm. to the present absolutely and we have a duty towards a future uh, in for the future for these young people so it's so important that we um start doing something now and be active about it now i agree i think the the pressures around you know now we're forming in a recession and and all that so i think leaders will be forced to think very very creatively and have to probably think more in-house and sideways before there's going to be more institutions that will be able to to support those systems. So I think that that planning now is absolutely critical because I don't know where and how that's going to be sorted in the next few years. Anyway, that's another discussion for another day. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure and a joy being back. Um, I'm 
boosted to be back next month. Um, I really hope everyone has enjoyed listening this evening. Um, Take good care. Stay well. Uh, Good evening, friends, and uh, we'll catch you in a month's time. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.